Uh, so there's this guy named Karl Barth, and he was a theologian, Swiss theologian, Swiss Calvinist theologian, kind of from our larger tradition, and often is said to be one of the most consistent theologians the world has known since Aquinas. Aquinas died in 1200. So I think he died in 1968. <clears throat> Pope Pius XII, nicknamed Pacelli, from the Catholic tradition says, he's the one that says the most important theologian since Aquinas, which is saying something for a Catholic. D.A. Carson, from the more kind of evangelical Protestant tradition, says this, Barth's thought is profoundly God-centered, profoundly Christ-centered, and profoundly grace-centered. Carson has beef with him. Everybody has beef with him. That's what happens when you're a really, really good theologian. But they all are in awe of this one. In 62, he came to the U.S. and toured the United States to teach, going to different seminaries, churches, conferences, all that stuff. A young student, seminarian, asked him, what is the essence of the Christian faith? He paused for a second and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Christianity is simple. We believe that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, made us a people for himself to delight in in relationship with him. And then he saw us fall into rebellion and misery and didn't give up. Even in our state of sin and misery, he made a people for himself within those people so that they would be a blessing to the world. And then through that very people, the nation of Israel, he sent his own son to live in a way that, that all human beings were intended to live the entire time, and then to take on the just penalty of our sin and bring the healing power of the resurrection to our misery. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's Christianity. And in one sense, it's deeply and profoundly simple. But if you read our passage today, which we'll read along together as we go, Christianity is profoundly complicated. This final legs of Paul's first missionary journey is where we are. And it's complicated not because the message gets changed in any way, but because a presence of something so simple and beautiful as Jesus loves me, this I know, ends up upending the world. As I like to say, you know, my, my buddy Flannery O'Connor, my heart buddy Flannery O'Connor says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. Whenever genuine Christianity enters into a culture or a heart, it creates conflict. Because the gospel talks about a king and his kingdom. And when that king and kingdom shows up um, in our mixed up world, it, it changes things. It changes hearts, it changes minds, it changes families, it changes civilizations. Because it reorders our loves to their proper place that have been disordered the entire time. 
I mean, all conflicts are not the same, and all people don't deal with conflict in the same way, and I don't think we should. That's why it's complicated, and that's why our passage has complications in it today. Now, y'all have been around people long enough that some people love a good conflict. They like that stuff. And some Christians love conflict or look at any kind of aggression, micro or macro, as a kind of proof of their being faithful. Some avoid it at all costs and try to stay under the radar of suspicion or misunderstanding. And sometimes either one of those strategies can be legitimate, but sometimes it could be you just want to pick a fight, and sometimes it could be you are being cowardice. Some actually take a perverse joy, a perverse joy in suffering or aggression or marginalization, and some find an actual righteous or virtuous joy in the same. We call that um, either a martyr complex or we call that a martyr. Verses 1 through 6 give us part of the story that helps us orient to this kind of confusion that can exist, this complication that can exist, and we start in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas head to the synagogues, which was their normal way of doing it. They preached, and many people believed, both Jews and Gentiles. And that's when the tension starts. Now, Iconium, just so you know, is still around in some sense. It's in the Konya region of Turkey. Found out that that's actually where Dr. Oz's family's from. Just a little extra information for you. Paul says the Jews went on offense when this happened. Now, when Paul uses the term Jews, you, everybody knows Paul's Jewish. And so he's just talking about the very specific leaders that were in charge of um, the religious life of Jewish people. He's not making a blanket statement. He just said Jews and Gentiles both came to believe. But they stirred up some of the powerful Gentiles who started together a a disinformation campaign, a discreditation campaign against the apostles. And how did the apostles respond? Now, this is important because we just heard that last time when, remember, Bar-Jesus came up, that he actually opposed Bar-Jesus to his face. But this time, they don't confront their accusers at all. They, they, they chose not to respond directly. The scripture says in verse 3, they remained for a long time. They spoke boldly for the Lord. And the Spirit bore witness to the word of grace, which means that the Spirit did something miraculous in the hearts of people, illuminating those hearts so that they could see that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But more even happened then, the, the people of Iconium received these gifts, this gift of signs and wonders that were done by the apostles' hands. God did miraculous stuff to accompany the preaching of the word to help them believe. And so all this disinformation campaign that was happening, with all the kindness of God that was showing up in Iconium, created a problem which verse 4, four says the people of the city were divided. That's where it gets complicated. How how do they deal with this group of, of, of disinformation folk along with all the signs and wonders that are happening? How do they deal with, which is now, a citywide problem? It's complicated. Again, we see sometimes they they 
they deal directly with their critics. This time they just keep preaching and ministering in whatever capacity God gives for them. So one of the things we learn is that, we, that when we're interacting in our world, that we, we keep an eye up at what the Lord's doing and out for how the Spirit might be leading us. We shouldn't always X or always Y. Sometimes it's just continued ministry. Sometimes it is a direct response. Sometimes we're just waiting for Jesus to show up with the power of signs and wonders to see what would happen in our midst. I think about this as how I've been trained. I'd say in the last 80 to 100 years, the main way Christians have been trained to deal with any kind of difference or opposition has been through, especially within the evangelical Protestant church, of which uh, the significant half of my uh, Christian life was, um, was equipping to have a contest of worldviews. Now that I'm 50, I have some questions about that. Now, do not get me wrong. I think worldview training is really good. Christians should humbly submit to the way God reveals himself in Scripture and how the Spirit reveals himself in the world. And it's right to dig in deep into how that is revealed. There are wonderful, beautiful depths there. We believe that the Scripture is our final rule of faith and practice. And I love that stuff. I love digging into that stuff. But what has happened, and I absolutely believe this is unintentionally, is, is that that it started helping us be good thinking Christians or th- as if we were just thinking machines. And so if you viewed the world rightly, it was good enough. But we are humans who've tasted and seen the beauty of Jesus within the greater story of God. We love God with our hearts and minds and bodies and souls and strength. It's not taking minds out of it. It's just not putting minds as the only thing. Jesus redeems us so that we can love him with all those ways and serve our neighbors. So sometimes we talk. Sometimes we keep quiet. Sometimes we challenge. And sometimes we just suffer. And that stuff is is larger than worldview without taking worldview out of it. Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's about wisdom of living in the world, not just wise thinking about the world, but actually living it out with your heart and your strength and your mind. And if there's anything our world needs now, it's Christians showing up with some wisdom. I had a leader in the church come and say, hey, what we need to do is we need to get all the kind of angst issues that are going on in our society, immigration, race, gender, violence, and we just need to explore the scripture and put out what the Bible says about each one of those things. And I was like, I get it, but I remember thinking, I don't think the Bible thinks about all our pressing questions the same way we do. Do I think that's a worthwhile work? Sure. But the Bible isn't a systematic textbook with an index to our most pressing questions. It doesn't work like that. The, 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 and frankly, the Bible and the Spirit oftentimes feel no obligation to answer our most pressing questions. 
It doesn't feel like it needs to explain that stuff to us. What it does concentrate on is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then we orient toward that in wisdom. Because we've been grafted into the grand narrative of this incredible story of God's love for his people, his sacrificial death for his people, and his resurrection power for his people. Because we can confuse right thinking with right living as if they were the same thing. And we're called to love our neighbors in word and deed, and we're called to love him with our whole being, including our minds. I don't know if he's here. He might get mad at me if I say this. But listen, y'all, Palmer Robertson may be the person I know alive that knows the Bible better than anybody else. But if you ask Palmer Robertson if he has mastery over theology and the Bible and the knowledge of God, he's going to say no. Because there's training and growing and wisdom. You can't get a white paper out and get it right. You don't find wisdom by reading your Bible alone. You won't find wisdom if you don't read your Bible. But it's about living it in in a sensitivity to the Spirit with the Scripture in hand, of course. Because, you know... It's not COVID. Testing every other day. (laughs) Because wisdom is like sanctification. It's kind of glorified winging it. Trying to lean into the Spirit and the Scriptures with humility. So, it doesn't give us all the answers that we want, but it does give us all the answers we need to live faithfully in our world. But here's the one answer it does give us. You know you've hit wisdom. You know you've hit it when you're filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, sometimes we suffer greatly. There are plenty of times where God just calls us to suffer and endure. Other times, we're just called to walk away from the situation. It happens in verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to stone them, verse 6, they fled to Lystra. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they just walked away. Then we go to Lystra or Lystra or Lystra. Verse 8 through 15 amps up the complication because something completely different happens. Now, it looks like that Lystra does in a pretty small town, it seems like, doesn't have a synagogue. So um, they must have found a, a town meeting place, and they began preaching, and it was an amazing success. And it actually starts like this. The author of Acts from Luke starts in 8. At Lystra, there, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet all the way from birth. He listened to Paul speaking, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Paul, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and walked. Wild. Again, Lister was not bigger than Ardmore. 
Ardmore probably dwarfs its population. And they show up at five points where this man is here, and Paul, with obviously the backstory is some really clear guidance from the Spirit, reliance upon the Spirit with humility and wisdom, is like, oh, oh, you want me to show him not so that he just believes that Jesus loves me, this I know, and has come to make everything new, but you want to give him a taste of that now. So, okay, stand up and walk. And he does. Giving him the ultimate foretaste of what that love will manifest in his lives. Now the crowd goes wild. Luke describes it this way, verse 11. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in, hmm, Laconian. I've been trying all week, but I really don't know what it is. See, it's in Laodicea, so I'm like, never mind. Um, they say this in their tongue. The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. And Paul's like, that's kind of what I said. <laughs> I said, the Son of God came down in likeness of man. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. And just in case you didn't have a Hermes lesson, Luke says that's because he was um, the chief speaker, which is Hermes, the messenger god. Now, Paul and Barnabas were good Jewish boys. They are not pantheists. They believed the Lord our God is one. They believed that it was three and one, and Jesus, the one, became incarnate in the likeness of men. So this isn't working out for him as that well, other than in the popularity contest. And it gets crazier because the folks in Lystra get Paul and Barnabas, not only call them gods, they start to want to worship them. Verse 15, whoever the priest of Zeus is, again, um, temples don't mean these big cathedral type things. It was at the front gates, it said. So maybe it's just a little shack about this is the Zeus space. And so he comes in at the entrance of the city and he brings ox and garland to the gates, wanting to offer sacrifice within the crowds for these gods who showed up. Well, I mean, the head priest and of Zeus is like, well, there's only thing we want to do. God's showed up. The gods have showed up, so we got to make sacrifice. And so sometimes ministry success brings trouble from opposition, sometimes from misunderstanding, from, sometimes from adoration. You can have ministry success and bring great trouble if you are too greatly adored. The fall, the rise and fall of Lystra came before the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And there were many in its wake on both sides, and there'll be many more to come. Now, before you get too judgy of these guys, isn't it true that we similar, have a similar myth that we believe? The celebrity pastor? The sub, sub, celebrity uh, social, Christian social critic? Don't we have myths of Zeus and Hermes? Like, to be a pastor today, y'all, is to know that you're being fact-checked. Which is good. There's a right fact-check, but it's not to go to your celebrity pastor who's, or a really good bod podcast to do it. 
is to come to the scriptures and with your pastor or elders and walk humbly together as sojourners trying to work out what the scriptures are doing with lots of wisdom and humility. That's how you do it. It's not that you don't do it, it's just how you do it. But celebrity pastor is a deep myth. So please fact check me. There's no way you can preach at 50 years old and not have messed up at some point. Now, I don't wish to be a celebrity pastor. I'm not really mad at it. Good thing there's not a real live temptation for me to become a celebrity pastor. But I'm working on it. No, um, I am not working on it. So ministry successes or seeming ministry successes can, successes can be a problem too. But Paul and Barnabas get right back to the main point. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. So Jesus is the Lord and the God who became uh, in the likeness of him, not us. Paul and Barnabas heard of it. They tore their, they went out to five points right in the middle and they tore their garments. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring good news. Good news ain't us that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the garlands and the oxen and the sea and all that is in them. That's the Jesus we're talking about. Not Zeus and Hermes and not Paul and Barnabas. That may be one of my favorite little mini-sermons that exists in the Bible. They're like, dang, Lister, you missed it. You're giddy about the signs and wonders, but not about the thing the signs and wonders point to. So they rip their clothes off, their outer garments. And this is the ancient Jewish tradition of Kyria. And it's a rending in grief or sadness, a loss. And they're like, no, don't do this. Stop. They're like, God forbid that you would worship us. We are like you. God has done amazing signs and wonders in our own lives, but we orient towards him. We're not here to peddle some temporary spiritual snake oil to you. We are here to tell you that the living God has reconciled himself to us and that Jesus loves us and he is the one who has come in the likeness of men. It's not good news, they're saying, if you're simply, we're simply like suppliers of religious goods and services to you. All that stuff's great. But we're talking about this upending kingdom that changes our lives, has changed our lives, and will change yours. Not re, and and they're, all they're doing is saying it's not us and reorienting them to the simple message. It's like, don't miss what we're saying. Jesus loves you and made everything. He doesn't need your sacrifices to coax him into loving you more or sustaining his love for you. You don't need to perform any spiritual magic tricks. He owns everything and anything you could use to bring a sacrifice to him. That's what they're, they're going for. This, you thought it was good news. You must not realize it is astonishingly good news. The one who loves you has come to make all things new, which you get a little foretaste of, to make everything bad come untrue, which you just got a little foretaste of, to rearrange and reorder all of your loves and your communities and your own hearts. You don't need a talisman. You need to receive this good news. 
And yet the Bible says, favorite, one of my favorite sermons in the Bible, it was mostly ineffective. <laughs> Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Dang it. Could you imagine Paul and Barnabas at this point? Showing up with utter clarity about the gospel, signs and wonders, and they're like, they still mostly missed it. Instead of embracing the message as it was, they did a little co-opt and brought it into their way of being. Now, I'm not throwing shade on Lystra. Every culture that's ever received the gospel has syncretized it to some degree, and that includes Americans. And though there were a bunch of misguided fanboys of Paul and Barnabas, the naysayers come to town from the other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch up north, and Iconium, like a bunch of like, um, the religious leaders come and they're like, they're like bounty hunters for, against, against Paul and Barnabas. And they refresh the disinformation campaign. And there's the crowds that wanted to worship, or at least some portion of the crowds that wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas, stone Paul and drag him out to the side, believing that he's dead. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead, the scripture says. Now that's complicated. That's difficult. From idolatrous worship to unlawful execution, the rise and fall of Lystra. But the Spirit intervenes. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. He walked back into the city that stoned him. And then the next day, I went to Derby. That's wild. Ministry success is dangerous. Ministry opposition is dangerous. It can get you stoned. And yet the Spirit keeps him. And so the end of this first, first missionary journey is 21 through following. And the, um, they, go to, they go to Derby. We don't hear about much there other than many people came to him. And then what does it say at, in 21? They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and saying we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. The gospel is beautifully true and simple, but when you show up with the gospel, it gets really tribulationist, tribulation-like. They went right back into those same cities. One tried to stone him. One actually did stone him. The other ones that sent the, the bandits, the, the, the kind of like bounty hunter bandits to get them stoned in the first place. And their job wasn't finished yet, and this is really important. This is why we are Presbyterians and why we believe in elder rule. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasted, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they basically went home to where they started. We talked about Antioch Prez down further south. That's what happened. And they told them the stories of what had gone on and that the Gentiles had believed, and all the complications that that meant, even with the simple message that Jesus loves me, this I know. Okay, let's orient to how this works for us. And whenever you're reading a Bible study, one of the ways to figure out how this kind of applies or knits into our lives is to figure out um, a character or a series of characters in the stories and how you fit in. And I've been around Christianity long enough, at least our, our portion of it, 
that everybody first identifies as one of the apostles. So let's do that. that. If you identify, if your life is a witness to Jesus, hear this. People will be confused. Sometimes antagonism, sometimes adoration, sometimes both. But your job is to walk around like a big arrow pointing to Jesus in all of it. Whether it's receiving the hateful rhetoric or the wrongful reverence, your job is to just be an arrow. And then your job is to stay curious on how the Spirit might have you respond. Maybe it's faithful presence for a season. Maybe it's walking away. Maybe it's going back into the lion's den and training the leaders that would take it over. Amazing. But here's the caution. If you're quick to identify as the apostles, be careful. Because just because you experience some tension or opposition doesn't mean it's because of your clarity about Jesus. Sometimes we create tension and difficulty and opposition because we're just being judgy and jerks. Also a problem, not addressed here, but also true. But here's the deal. If you're being a judgy, self-righteous jerk, you have the opportunity to be the arrow again and repent and tell them, I'm being a judgy jerk. That's what our tension's about. And then you'll really be proclaiming that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Because it's true for you as well. But if I had my druthers, we'd all take these secondary characters and figure out where we were in the stories. So let's think about being the crowds in Iconium or Lystra or Derby. The, the gospel truly has kind of just shown up in our towns, and we've responded in one way or another. And we can opt for anger or jealousy, silly power grabs that, that, that want us to be at least sovereign over some part of our lives. And we're all tempted to do this. I know, Jesus, you made everything, and you love me, but this little thing, this one's mine, and I don't want you to have any part of it, whatever that thing is. Or we could opt for a veneer of acceptance, but really what we've done is co-opted the Jesus story into our pagan myths that we hold. That is a deeply tempting thing. We all want to co-opt Jesus so we can still live the American dream. Well, I want to co-opt Jesus into the myths of, of whatever we imagine as prosperity or pleasure or power. And just like you can know that you're hitting wisdom when you have the fruit of the Spirit, you know you're not hitting wisdom and you're doing this co-opting when, as Anne Lamott famously said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> then you know. But we can also opt to sit in it and be trained in the wisdom of the proclamation of the gospel with reliance and prayer and fasting, staying faithful to the message, even when it hurts, even when we're misunderstood, even when we don't know what God's doing completely. And that's why the solution for every single person in all the stories, in all the stories of the Bible except for Jesus, is to actually return to the simple reality that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that love, because it's born in resurrection power, helps us repent 
of our anger, of our jealousy, of our pagan myths, of our co-opting Jesus into some syncretized worldview that we all have. And then we can repent because we, we precisely believe that Jesus really does love us and that we're free to do that and that Jesus really did make us in all things and that by the cross, he really does forgive us of our sins, both pre- and post-conversion and that he promises to make us new because of the power of the resurrection. That, my friends, is the good news that we're arrows towards and the good news that we rely on for all of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Help us lean into this. Help us, help us just believe the simple truth that you love us, that you made a way by your cross, by your resurrection that you really, really, really do give us unmerited and unconditional love and grace and help that transform how we interact in the world with all our folly, with all the good things we try. Let it be the thing we both point to and points directly at our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen.